I like to think about when I give the instructions for practice, <coughs> giving the instructions in a way that um, the instructions themselves point at the insights or the wisdom that I hope people will develop. So when I give um, instructions, I like to say things like, uh, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the body and then go on from there. Because I think it gives that news that the natural place of the mind and body is one of peace and ease. In a similar way, when um, I have a chance to develop instructions with people over some time, and particularly working with a group day after day, I give instructions for uh, paying attention as soon as I can in a way that directs the attention to the truth of the change of things. Some years ago in Esalen, I was teaching um, for a week, and I was giving the instructions to this group of folks who was sitting all day, every day, as you are. And I, um, as the week went by, I elaborated on the instructions for paying attention to the breath, just as we have here. And I noticed that I said, often, paying attention particularly to the breath as it arises and passes away. Noting the breath in this place or that place as it arises and passing away. Being in touch with the fact that it arises and passes away. Not so much feeling the content of it or the, the, the uh, sensations of it, although I certainly talked about that as well, but as much as I could, and perhaps certainly more than this group was perhaps ready to hear, I was directing the attention to the fact that things arise and pass away. Um, I'd say it at the end of the day, just as I might now say, you might notice that another day has come and gone. As a matter of fact, if you've been here since the very beginning of the first retreat, you might actually realize that another whole moon has come and gone. We're back on no moon again, and we started at no moon. And uh, on Wednesday night, just before the sun sets, you'll see the moon set as well, the sliver of the new moon. So we've come a whole moon. I even today figured out that if a person lived 70 years, they'd see 840 moons. On the one hand, that's a lot of moons. On the other hand, it's a finite amount of moons. You use up your moons. And not everybody makes it to 70 years. So I was teaching in Esalen, and I kept saying, notice how another day has gone. Everything that arises passes away. I thought it was a good thing to say, because there's a precedent for saying that. It was the last thing that the Buddha said before he died. Well, actually, it was the penultimate thing that he said. The very last thing he said was something like, strive on or move on with confidence, depending on how you translate that. But the thing that he said right before that is usually translated as transient are all conditioned things. Um, A few weeks ago, I think during the first retreat, I read to you from the uh, new book about uh, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the 
San Francisco Zen Center. And um, I, particularly for the people who weren't here, told the story that the author told about having admired uh, Suzuki Roshi very much and uh, been a student of his and loved listening to the Dharma talks. And uh, at one point, uh, when Suzuki Roshi asked for questions, the author of this book said, I raised my hand and said, you know, I love what you say and I love listening to your Dharma talks and I love everything that I hear, but it's so hard for me to put it all together. I just don't understand it. Could you tell me everything in a simple way about Buddhism in one sentence? And he said that Suzuki Roshi paused and thought about it and he thought perhaps he wouldn't answer and then he did answer. He said, everything changes. So going on my sense that the Buddha had said it, it's the important thing to learn. It was an important thing for me to experience firsthand. And surely it's something we all know that things arise and pass away. Everybody sort of gets that. But in my experience, it was really important for me to watch moons come and go and days come and go and breaths come and go in the particular rarefied way of paying attention that we do in retreats. Somehow I think it goes in to the body and the mind and the heart in a way that writes itself into the sinews, is understood in a particular way, kind of drops down from the mind into the heart or the being or the however that works. So back to Eslin, I kept on with my instructions Notice the breath as it is arising and passing away, the days as they're arising and passing away. And one afternoon, somewhere on the fourth or the fifth day, in the middle of the afternoon, starting a sitting, once again giving the instructions, allow your body to relax, let your attention rest in the breath, and notice the breath as it's arising and passing away. And you know how we have a certain ethic in a in a retreat. There's a kind of retreat culture. Have you ever heard anyone speak out in the middle of the instructions? Everybody (laughs) just sits quietly and listens. Afterwards, we invite questions and then people think about it before they raise their hand. Here I am in what I think is my most friendly, inviting, teaching voice, saying, be in touch with the breath, as it arises and passes away, everything arises and passes away. And one man in the group, in a somewhat anguished voice, just called out, he said, why do you keep on saying that? (laughs) He said, I can't stand it that you keep on saying that. So I was a little bit startled, because it's not exactly the cultural context. And I think I said something like, I keep on saying it because it's true. (laughs) And there's a certain way in which we hope for that truth to arise in us in a way that's liberating and not frightening. And the edge is very close, actually. The edge of all of the insights is very close. It's easy to be frightened by them. You come to see that everything really does pass away this whole month. For the people who've been here a month, poof, it's gone. And this is just like vanished. 30 days. 
of a million moods and a million feelings and a zillion thoughts, all gone. And here we are. So what I wanted to talk about is what, what is possibly liberating about discovering that. Why isn't it just bad news or sad news? <coughs> There's a certain way in which we know that things pass and then we're always startled by their passing. One of my daughter's friends died yesterday, quite suddenly, a young man. He'd been quite ill. It seemed as if his treatment was going to work, and then quite suddenly it didn't, and now he's gone. And today, when as I spent time with her, she talked about how startling it was to be in a world where he wasn't there anymore. Yesterday he was. We talked about all the ways in which the fact that he's not anymore impact the world, his wife, his two children, all of their friends, all of their children who are quite startled by the news. It's as if we know that things change and Everything is impermanent. People come and go. Relationships come and go. Lives come and go. How to not be frightened of that, how to be able to hold that, was really the question that drew me into practice to begin with. Many people come to practice at a time that they have suffered a startling loss, a loss of their own health, loss of a person they love, loss of a dream that they had, loss of an idea of what might be happening for their life. I actually came into practice not as a result of a personal loss, the result of a loss of people close to me on the street that I lived, that somehow brought home for me in a way that hadn't before the fact that that's going to be true for all of us sometime or another, and for me as well. And not because I thought the step ahead, which would have been, I need to find a spiritual practice that will sustain me in times of loss, but more actually out of a sense of fear. I don't think I can manage the losses that life will inevitably present me with. And really I came to practice not because I thought that it would allow me to hold losses in a way that I was afraid I couldn't. But because I think in some magical way it would protect me from loss. I think I I know that I had some view of spiritual practice that it would somehow 
take me out of this world or so um, remove me from the sense of pain and loss that I wouldn't feel it anymore because my sense was that if I felt it, I couldn't bear it. I was really preoccupied with how fragile things are. That when we say to people, I'll see you tomorrow, no, no, really. That was one of the thoughts that Emily had today. She said, I saw him two days ago. Two days ago we spoke. We thought he'd get better. So I'll see you soon, but we won't. When I thought about that, I thought, I don't think I can manage that. When that happens to me, and it truly will, one way or another, because it happens to all of us, I thought, I don't think I can manage that. I can't manage that. I thought for some time, it isn't as if I had that thought and found myself in a meditation retreat the next day. There's some period of time, some years, where I was really quite overwhelmed with what, if I had been more sophisticated, I would have been able to say was existential angst. I would have been able to say, I am having a midlife crisis of existential angst. But that was way more sophisticated than I was. All I knew was that I was terrified. And all I knew also is that by accident, uh, and um, good karma and grace. I, uh, it was the mid-70s, and I found myself um, at a mindfulness retreat. And the very first thing that my teachers talked about was the teaching about the inevitability of loss. I thought to myself, here people recognize the same terrible truth about life that I do, and they seem okay about it. So this must be an all right place to be. There surely is something that I can learn. Then when I began to listen to, and certainly to read some of the things that the Buddha had said, everything that is dear to us causes pain, was one of the things that he said. I thought to myself, that's true. But it doesn't say it all. It causes pain eventually. It doesn't also say that anything that's dear to us also is a source of joy, at least sometimes. That's what makes it dear to us. I didn't understand immediately that because it's a source of pain does not mean that we don't have the heart to hold it. I really love the title of uh, my friend Sharon Salzberg's newest book, a heart as wide as the world, just has such a sense to me of the possibility of each of our hearts being able to acknowledge the pain of human connections and their inevitable losses and ruptures, and the fact that we can hold them. And in fact, the fact that it is our experience of caring and feeling pained empathically pain for the cares of the world and the pains of the world that really allows us to manifest ourselves as the compassionate beings that we are. I also thought about as time went by and I 
really found myself in the middle of practice and in the middle of the dilemma of everything that is dear to us causing pain, the fact that things are dear to me, and the realization that I don't have a choice. It isn't as if on hearing the teaching that everything that is dear to us causes pain, that I can then make a decision, okay, I won't have things dear to me. They are. Too late. And I wouldn't have it otherwise. So what became clear to me was that there has to be an understanding that I haven't got yet. That understanding, now some 27 years down the road, is that we can manage it, all of it. And that it is in the managing that we become kinder and softer and gentler and much more careful. We don't have a choice. We can't say just for that. I think that's out of our hands. There is something, though, that mitigates the fact what, there are some, many things that mitigate, I think, the fact that we will have inevitable losses. One of them is really the full awareness of the truth that things change. That even our grief changes from time to time. That when we are really overwhelmed with grief, for the periods of time that we are overwhelmed with grief, they stretch as far as we know to the horizons of our mind. Grief seems endless. Just as I realized today, as um, I drove over the hill into San Rafael, and then I drove back here, and here it's raining, and there it's not. But for anyone sitting here, it's raining all over the whole world. Don't know where the edge of the rain is. The clearest way in which I could see over time that the awareness of impermanence made a difference in me is that when I was in the middle of anything, I knew it had an edge. Didn't know where the edge was, but I knew it had an edge. That was, for some years, my sense of the greatest thing that I had learned in practice, that there was an end to whatever was my current experience. It's not, of course, a helpful thing to say to somebody when they're in the middle of an experience. It's a helpful thing, though, to know in your heart when you're with someone who's in the middle of an experience, because then it allows you to be with them without being frightened. In the more difficult times in my life that have come and gone in the last 10 years, the loss of people who were dear to me, or the feared loss of people who were dear to me. I'm quite sure that one of the things that sustained me was knowing that whatever happened, it wouldn't be forever. I'm quite trusting of the fact that that visceral knowledge is a part of watching and knowing day after day 
the coming and goingness of everything, established very deeply through years of practice. So as we sit here day after day and you watch the days go by and the moons go by and the breaths go by and the meals go by. Sometimes when I was in the middle of a period of practice and I was really eager to go home, I would think to myself, okay, 17 more lunches, 16 more breakfasts. And as I numbered them down, I could tell that the end was... um, nearer. Somebody told me that they uh, numbered uh, their journal for being here, in which they assure me they write only one sentence a day, (laughs) Um, but that they numbered their journal from 42 back down to 1, rather than from 1 to 42, which was I thought a really wonderful thing to do. 1 to 42, first of all, looms out enormously long. I think also gives the sense that there would be some crescendo end. of 42 to 1, though, which I might have thought of in terms of, okay, 16 breakfasts and 17 lunches. Actually, for this person, was a choice that was made uh, to remind them of the preciousness of practice and how few days there were left so that they would continue to be inspired as they went along. A little bit different from, thank goodness there are only 17 days left, to, goodness, there are only 17 days left. It's a small shift in where the mind is, but I think it does something for you. It's been really interesting for me to reflect on how even, however clear I get to be, and I think this is true for many of us, so that's why I mention it, about the ephemeral nature of our relationships, of our bodies, of our lives, that they're all passing away as we watch. I'm amazed to see when I look in the mirror that my mother is wearing my clothing and showing up where I am. And I thought it was me. Um, I have no idea how I got to be so old so fast. Sometimes I think to myself, that having been so, it's quite likely that I'll get up tomorrow and find that I'm 80. Because um, it feels like I, a day or two happened since I got married, and look what happened. And sometimes that's really frightening. And sometimes it wakes me up for right now. It's amazing to me however much we know that everything changes, everything is ephemeral, nothing stays the same, how much I, and perhaps you as well, tend to stay firmly entrenched in views. They seem to be the most difficult. They move in, in a kind of immutable way. I think sometimes I see that I live my life out of a view that I have fixed as an eternal truth. And nothing stays the same. 
of truths that it, stories that I tell about myself, that I'm such and such a kind of a person. And then I discover, if I pay very good attention, that that's maybe a story that I used to tell myself. It's not so true. It's changed. I'm not that kind of a person. Or I listen to people in interviews who tell me about views they have about themselves, often demoralizing views. I'm a person, I'm a very angry person, people will say, or I'm filled with anger. That's even a more demoralizing view. It's very much more hopeful to discover about oneself that no one is filled with anything, that anger arises and passes away. Perhaps for some people it arises more frequently than for other people, but who's to know? Because the reporter only knows their own experience. We often have a notion that ours is much more or much less or much worse than everybody else's. But we don't know. Compared to what? Sometimes people come in and say, with a very happy face on, and they say, and I'm always happy to hear it, I figured it out. I'm just who I am. It's such a relief. We have, I think, such a burden of a view of who we ought to be like the prototype of us that's in some other realm that's the perfect version of us and we here are somehow the imperfect version of that celestial prototype that we are always living up to if you went to school anytime in the I don't know maybe I think they've stopped doing it now that that dreadful phrase about not living up to their This child is not working up to their potential. Who is to know what their potential is? It's against the great prototype in the sky of a child with that name who looks like that child (laughs) that someone with omniscient vision has decided has a potential different from how they are manifesting. But we none of us could be different from who we are at any given time. To be able to say, you know, this is how I am, with this intention of my heart, and this is how I am. We also have often fixed views of other people, and I think so frequently, I see it myself, that I construct my life in my relationships by behaving as if the person I'm relating to is the person I imagine them to be, rather than the person they actually are. I make a story about who they are, and then I live out of that story. And they may or may not be that story. And what's much more likely is they're very much more than their story, than that story. They're that story and something else. I always worry when it's a, a long retreat if I've told the story before. So a guy has to tell me, can I tell the story about the trip to Dharamsala? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but not now and you have to listen again (laughs) so you can think something else for a while good (laughs) 
this is fixed in a view, and I get to tell a story about Jack anyway, so. And it's a good story about him. A couple of years ago, I had the very great pleasure of being invited to come with 25 other Western Buddhist teachers to uh, have a conference in Dharamsala and meet with the Dalai Lama. And uh, of those 26 people, I knew perhaps half of them, maybe a third of them reasonably well, some of them just by name, some of them I didn't know at all. And uh, it's quite a long trip to go to Dharamsala, so you have to, uh, you have to first fly to London, and then from London to Delhi, and then to take the night train from Delhi to Patanka, and then you have to take a four-hour harrowing taxi drive from Patanka to Dharamsala. So by the time you're there, you're really in a quite altered consciousness <laughs> from paying attention. It's not easy to travel in India. You have to really be awake and alert. It's quite overwhelming to the senses, so you're really alert and awake, present. So here we are, all of a sudden, all of us gathered together in a, uh, this amazing community on the top of the mountain in northern India. And uh, we had several days to prepare for our meeting with the Dalai Lama. So these 26 folks um, were having um, all-day meetings, the group of us, to prepare our, our agenda for what we would do. And the very first day, on the very first morning, we all met in a circle in the main room of our, the salon of the hotel we were staying in. And uh, we were going to introduce ourselves to each other and then get about the business of preparing the agenda. And uh, my friend Jack Cornfield was the facilitator of that group. And, uh, you know, often in a group of folks who get together to do some work together, they have some way of introducing themselves that's more or less casual and superficial. My name is so-and-so, I teach here and there, and these are the kinds of folks that I teach or whatever, and I live here or there. Um, Jack said to this group, why don't we go around the circle and we'll each say who we are and uh, what the most uh, uh, pressing, important spiritual challenge we each of us are facing at this point, in our personal lives and in our teaching. Jack said to this group, why don't we go around the circle and we'll each say who we are and uh, what the most uh, uh, pressing, important spiritual challenge we each of us are facing at this point in our personal lives and in our teaching. So that is not a superficial question. That is about the most intimate question you can really ask a person, especially in the company of peers, all of whom you hope will be impressed with you, because I'm pretty sure all of us were pretty impressed with having been invited to India. Everybody, I don't know if everybody, but perhaps many of us shared my feeling that uh, I'd been invited there by mistake, or that everybody else was more valuable and more worthy of having been invited than I. And that I would say the wrong thing and they'd, they'd all say the right thing. But here was Jack, he said, here's this question. And he had the microphone and he said, here's the question, I'll go first. And then 
never mind who wants to talk first. I'll go first, and then I'll pass the microphone around, and we'll just do it in order. So then it is out of your hands. It's a fait accompli. You're in Dharamsala on the top of a mountain, a half a world away, and the microphone's on its way, there, and, and you can't lie. <laughs> so there is no way out but forward. So at this point, and, and you've just traveled all this time, so everything has mitigated in the direction to mind awake, alert, balanced, poised, and paying good attention. So now we go back to the circle of folks, some of whom I know and some of whom I don't know. Of those that I knew, there were two, maybe three, I'm not completely remembering, but two for sure, about whom I didn't have the best feeling that I had had some dealings with before. They had a view of me, I had a view of them. So that you remember this morning when I was giving the instructions and I said, we have experiences that are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. If I had gone around that circle and looked at each person, starting with Jack, I would have said about my uh, experience when looking at and perceiving who was there, starting with Jack, very pleasant, 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 neutral, pleasant, neutral. Ah! (laughs) Unpleasant. Neutral, pleasant, neutral, ah, unpleasant. If I went around the circle, honestly, and did that. But here is everybody now having the microphone saying what's really the most vulnerable thing in their life, in the most vulnerable situation to a group of their peers, really, and went around. So here we go to very pleasant, pleasant. And in each one, I'm paying tremendous attention And I'm really not rehearsing what I'm going to say because I have no idea what I'm going to say. All I know is that the microphone will come around and when it does, I'll say my truth because there's no other possibility. If you know you're going to tell the truth, you don't have to rehearse it. You'll know it when you get there. There's no, you know, it'll change three times by the time you get there. So there's no (laughs) point. So here comes the microphone around, around, around. And in each person who's sharing in an honest and open way, I really... I'm appreciating them. I'm uplifted by their honesty and their openness and their ability to make themselves vulnerable. And it went back person, 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 person. And then all of a sudden, it went by the person, went up to the person about whom I had felt, ugh, person I don't like, person about whom I have this whole story. But I was in that moment paying really good attention and really alert. And at that point, with my whole attention in that moment, all I heard was what that person was saying. Something honestly vulnerable, open, about their own struggle and their own challenge. And in that moment, they're a person just like all the rest of us, a person with struggle and challenge, trying the best that they can. And I felt exactly the same towards this person as I had to the people before. And the microphone continued on, and of course the same thing happened again with the person after. And I realized that what had been different in that moment when I realized it afterwards is that I had come to that moment so awake and so present and so attentive that I had just been altogether there. And I had not brought to that moment my whole story about what this person said about me three years before that hurt my feelings, that I had nurtured, all no story. 
And the person without the story is just the person. And then it's just a person who's like everybody else, struggling and challenging, challenged and trying hard. And then, what I remembered later on, that was very interesting, that here was so-and-so. And I didn't feel that. I remembered. It wasn't as if I hadn't forgotten that so-and-so had, in fact, said that hurtful thing about me. That was a long time ago. And it's true, but it's only one piece of so-and-so. It's not the whole story of so-and-so. The whole story of so-and-so is much bigger than that. You see the whole story of so-and-so. You're really liberated from stuck in that view. And stuck in that view was painful. As long as I was stuck in the view, I have to avoid that person either in person or in my heart. I am stuck not thinking kind thoughts about that person whenever they come up in my mind which is my own non-liberation, to whatever degree we are carrying in our heart little unpaid balances of uh, annoyances that people have caused us, our hearts are closed. It was a pleasure to be finished with that view. It's a tremendous pleasure to be finished with any fixed view that holds me in a position about myself or other people in a position vis-a-vis me that are uncomfortable, causing pain, limiting how I live in the world. thought about, if I talked about how there are ends to things, why do we get so stuck? Why do we forget that there are ends to things? Get so stuck in a view where if we remembered, we'd be liberated much sooner. That's a complicated story why we get stuck in a view. I think we practice a view because we think we need to have it to protect us. I think we can hear that we don't need it for a long time and then suddenly when we discover actually that we're safe without it, then the shift happens by itself. I think we get stuck as well when we get, when we forget that things are changing and perishable in our relationships with people, when we're startled by their loss. I thought about talking about this tonight, and I thought about How would I, what story would I tell that would be the right story to end with if I talked about how everything changes? And two came to mind. One of them happened this week. Um, a woman that I 
a woman that I know, she's a nurse, told me a story that uh, she works at Santa Rosa Hospital. And uh, she said, uh, she was telling me about the events of the day. She said they had one of those calls on the, um, uh, the hospital public address system that let you know that they need all hands in the emergency room right away. And she said it's the kind of a call where they didn't call her by name, but if you're free and you can possibly go and you're part of the medical personnel, you go. And she's a nurse, and she was in the middle of doing something, but she thought, I have a feeling I should go. So she went. What was happening in the emergency room is they had just brought in a woman who was in the final stages of labor, uh, who didn't speak English, a Latino woman. And it happens that my friend who told me the story spoke Spanish. So she was immediately helpful. The baby was being born in an unexpectedly hurried way. The mother had not had prenatal care. It was, uh, they thought, several months early. turned out to be only one month early. And the baby was presenting breach. When they discovered that, they rushed to another operating room. And she said there were three of us working, the emergency room doctor and myself and another nurse, and we all know the routine. I've worked in labor and delivery. We knew the drill really well. She said everybody was very focused. Everybody was doing exactly what they needed to do. Everybody was alert as anything. Baby was <clears throat> born breech. She said suddenly his little body came out in one piece. She said and the great worry with uh, breech births is that uh, as soon as a baby is expelled, the cervix closes down to push out and you don't want it to close down around the baby's neck, which, when the biggest part of the baby has come out, is one of the dangers. She said, I was praying so hard. She said, and here came out this baby. We were all... And she said, and then the rest of them came out. And she said, and the baby was very limp and lifeless and turned out just over five pounds. She said, and everybody was intent over him. He said, and we were, we were watching. I handed them the suction. They did the suction. The emergency room doctor had his stethoscope on the baby's chest. And suddenly he said, I have a heartbeat. And I said, suction again. And he suctioned again. And the baby started to change color. And I said, and I said, she said to me, I said, he's pinking. And then the baby made a little plaintive cry out, and she said, everybody said, yes! And that baby went home from the hospital today. And when she told me that story, I was thinking about the fact that we all know that everything passes. We all know that things that come into being will eventually pass. We all know the ephemeral nature of life. We don't know how many moons this baby's going to have. Well, what's going to happen next? But there is something in it, in us, that nevertheless, that everything is perishable, so cherishes life, that the whole of the world, and all the comings and goings, and all the people who have ever been, forever and ever, all the way back in time, and forward in time, all vanished, as all these three people were over this five pounds of baby, waiting to say, yes, it's here. 
everything that we know about grief and loss and separation, we want it anyway. We want life to happen. We care. We say there's nothing that's permanent. Our views change, our bodies change, our relationships change. I think what does not change is the capacity of the human heart to respond with kindness and compassion. Fundamentally, I think what does not change are the, the Brahma-vihara states that make up our consciousness, that fundamentally we are made of lovingness and kindness and compassion, that we don't know this child, but we are overjoyed. When I told you that story, and I said that child, yes, were you not happy? And you don't know the mother, you don't know the child, but somewhere there's a mother with a child who went home today, and it makes us all happy because we all know in some way The other story I wanted to tell you was a meditator's story. It's another story about connection. Um, a man came to see me uh, at a retreat recently, and he said, um, I want to tell you since when I really began to pay attention to the breath. He said, um, it's a man about my age. He said, my wife and I have a... Uh, condominium in the Great Smoky Mountains, and we go there every winter to ski. And uh, for the last 10 years, in these kinds of uh, timeshares, you show up in the same week, there's always the same folks in the condominium next to you in that same week, because that's how it works. So for 10 years or so, we've been passing these same people next door. We've always said hello, you know, we pass them going in or out, but that was it. He said, just this last winter, one night we were both returning home from skiing at uh, the end of the day, and uh, people next door said, you know, we've seen each other all these years, but we, you know, why don't you just bring your dinner, whatever you're going to have, and bring it next door. We'll have dinner together. So we went next door. We had dinner. We passed the evening. So it was a very pleasant evening, and... Uh, the gist of the conversation that he, this Fred is telling me that he had with this other man is how unpredictable life is, that you never know. And he said, I went back home. At, uh, they finished the evening, they went back home. In the night, there was a great pounding on the wall. And um, probably you anticipate the story. He and his wife ran next door, and of course their neighbor had had a heart attack and had died. They spent the night the rest of the night while well, people came. and He said, I came home and the dawn was coming up. He said, I made myself a cup of coffee and I sat by the window and I watched it get day again. And I appreciated about watching the sun come up again, one more sunrise. And I appreciated the coffee. And he said, and I realized as I was smelling the coffee that I was smelling it because I could take a breath in and that I was taking a breath in, and my neighbor with whom I had spoken the night before wasn't going to do that again. He said, since then, I realized we get a certain number of breaths, certain number of cups of coffee, certain number of sunrises. And the way that he told me was not in a way that was scary. It's a really a way of cherishing. Now of my three score years and ten, 
20 will not come again. Do you know that poem? It's an A.E. Hausman poem. I've memorized it when I was about 16. And take of 70 springs a score, it only leaves me 50 more. And since to look at things in bloom, the first verse which I left out was about looking at cherry blossoms in the spring. And since to look at things in bloom, 50 springs is little room. About the woodlands I will go to see the cherry hung with snow. So I memorized it when I was 16. And I was impressed then with how few springs 50 more would be. And it's a lot of more springs passed, and I'm still impressed with how few springs we have, how few days we have, how few moments we have. What impresses me enormously is what we could do with those moments, that we could make them matter, that we could pay attention. That in fact what passes are individual things. What lasts is the impact that we have on each other. People who were here, uh, no, I guess even the people who were here the first three weeks wouldn't know this. In the last morning when the people who were going home had their question and answer period, someone said, you know, I'm a bit dismayed about this coming and going and passing away in a Nietzsche business and because I've had all these tremendous insights, and they're going away too. And do you mean to say that this whole thing is a total loss, and I'll just come here, and three weeks will come and go, and the days will go. I'll have all these experiences, and these up, and these downs, and these highs, and these great insights, and everything, and it's all poof, it's nothing, it's just... I think it was Guy who answered that question. It was a good answer, whoever answered it. Because the answer was that the insights pass like everything else passes, but it impacts and conditions the next moment. It makes a difference. So that change happens. And what's changed is our understanding, our level of wisdom, our level of compassionate response, our ability to discern wisely, that whatever it is that continues is renewed and changed by the experience, just as whoever we meet is an opportunity to effect change. We are changed by the insights that arise in us. In a sense, sometimes we say that's the good news and that's the bad news. It's not either good or bad news. I told my teacher one time, I said, it's so sad, this passing away of everything. He says, it's not sad. Sad is just the story that you're telling yourself about it. It's true. Sad is the extra story that you're doing. You can make any story you want about it. I thought about that as you were coming in and I was getting ready to do this talk about how we could make any story we wanted about anything. The beautiful bell out there was ringing. And I thought, probably each of us hears this bell in a different way. There's a way of hearing the bell and thinking for whom the bell tolls, and it's a rainy evening, and 
could make a sad story about it. You could think to yourself at the same time, what a remarkable thing. At this moment, this bell is ringing. And 70 people, all of whom trust that waking up to kindness and compassion is a possibility, are working so hard about doing it. And what's more, they're not doing it alone. All over the world, there are bells ringing in Buddhist centers, in all kinds of centers. And in response to those bells, people all over the world who share, as you do, the belief, the trust, really, that a transformation of heart, the kindness and compassion, is the possibility of human beings. And they, as you, are responding to that bell, coming to sit down to practice it again. You could make a wonderful story out of it. That's not good news or bad news. It's just news. Actually, the discovery that it's news and we make something out of it and we have some choice about what we make out of it is really the liberating news. So let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 14, 1999. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.